You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the CEO and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Hosting this episode along with me is our chairman and chief investment officer, my father, Bill Smead. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Let's say I just want to mention this. If you enjoy this show, we'd encourage you to go write a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this today. So let's do this. We're glad you've joined us for this episode. We are going to discuss one of the leading economic historians of the last 100 years and the person that built up the framework of how we look at the dollar as the reserve currency today. Perry Merling is joining us to talk about his recent book, Money and Empire, Charles P. Kindleberger and the Dollar System. He has published three other books, uh, Money, Interest, and Public Interest in 1997. He then published Fisher Black and the Revolutionary Idea of Finance in 2005. And his book prior to this was The New Lombard Street in 2011. He is a professor of economics at the Party School of Global Studies at Boston University. Before we get going, Bill, is there anything that you're looking forward to in our conversation today? My two favorite classes in my econ degree at Whitman College were Dave Stevens' History of Economic Thought mm-hmm. and uh, Dr. Shepard's Economic History class. Yeah, I thought a lot about uh, Jim Shepard's class of American Economic History, and um, I think I'll do a lot better in our discussion with Perry than I did on my, my <laughs> final in his class. So, Perry, thank you for joining us today. This is a real treat. Glad to be here. So, uh, to kick off our discussion, what inspired you to write about Kindleberger? The initial idea was not to write about Kindleberger, but to write about the global dollar. So it was supposed to be a follow-up to the book that you mentioned, New Lombard Street, which was a sort of biography of the Fed from 1913 to the present. It was my sort of financial crisis book in a way, and you know, leading up to how the Fed fought the global financial crisis. But because it was a biography of the Fed, it was too domestic. And so when I read it at the end, I said, no, this was a crisis of the global dollar system. And so I need to globalize this story. And I started to work on that and try to write a biography of the dollar. And then I found Kindleberger. I had known him before. I had run into, in fact, I had interviewed him before for a previous book, the first one that you were mentioning there. But I found all of his papers and I realized, you know, he's the perfect subject because he was born in 1910. And uh, so right about when the Fed was born, 1913, and he was a creature of the Great Depression, he was in PhD then. So he, he this period of the end of the sterling system and the rise of the dollar system was basically his years. Mm-hmm. So he was the perfect foil for this larger story. And to make, to, to close the deal, it's actually the main thing he was concerned about in his work. So, so this was perfect. But I, I, I didn't start to do write Kindleberger. I found him, and then I, uh, I, I created this book. Perry, uh, teach our listeners about Charles' upbringing prior to him going off to college. Well, he was born in New York City, 
and uh, grew up in a rather prosperous household, Republican household of a lawyer. His father was a minor, also interested in politics and, and, and I think ran for office or was interested in. So, so he's a New York City boy. And uh, he was sent to uh, private school um, at the Kent School upstate is where he went to, went to high school. And they also had a summer house in Jamestown. And uh, so he had a kind of privileged upbringing and I think a very happy childhood, you know, s- sailing around in the summers and going. And he loved Kent School, by the way. Um, I, I went up to visit it. It's much nicer place now than it was then. It was sort of all ramshackle old farm buildings then. It had just really been been started. So he grew up in the 20s, the roaring 20s. Um, he was born in, ni- in, in 1910 and uh, and in New York City, So the which is where the roaring 20s particularly roared. So I think that's that's kind of important. And then talk to us about uh, him going off to college. And I seem to be not the only freshman that partied a little bit too much that first year. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, so, he, so he went to Penn, and that was sort of required because his father and, and uncle had gone to Penn. So that was a family tradition. And he, and he joined this fraternity and partied a little hardy. And he, he was actually a lifelong member of that, of that fraternity, and it helped him, in fact, get, paid for his graduate school. So that was a good, a good connection to make. Um, but he was already a blooming intellectual person, um, and, uh, and that's where he sort of came, found economics, really, at, at, at college. He, he came in as a classics major. He'd been at Kent. So he was very good at, at languages, um, and, uh, and he, he won various prizes in high school and that sort of thing. But once he found economics, uh, he, he, he switched over um, and, uh, and, and, never, and never looked back. So he was, I think, uh, that made him a more serious student. Um, the, uh, he graduated in the middle, you know, as the Depression was just coming on. So he thought he would go into international banking. Um, that was his plan. Um, and, uh, but there were certainly no jobs. Uh, and so he had to think of something else to do. There's an irony our missive today is called Happy Days Are Here Again from the movie in 1930. Yeah. Well, <laughs> nobody really knew how this was all going to play out. And I, I think it's conceivable in 1930 that that was a reasonable thing to believe. Um, but he would later write uh, about that period. Um, I don't if you, if your if your listeners know, Charlie, one of his most famous books is World in Depression, um, which he which he wrote in it was published in 1973. And I read this book very much kind of autobiographically. Um, he actually dedicates it to his father, um, who basically lost all of his money in the depression and so they were they were quite well to do and then suddenly they were not well to do um and uh that all of, all of a sudden um and he was on his own in you know trying to make his way through through life but i do think that that he in that in that book he argues that the sort of main initial shock of the great depression was the stock market fall which undermined the the finance of commodities um, and commodity traders which which led to dumping of these commodity stores um, and and therefore downward pressure on prices so the deflation was started by a sort of liquidity squeeze um, in fact um, on on commodity dealers um, but the second shoe dropped when when uh, the Bank of England went off went off gold um, because everyone had been trying in the twenties and imagining that we were going to return to the global global sterling standard. Um, sterling went back to gold in nineteen twenty five at the pre war sure. par, and uh, and and that proved to be impossible. Um, and the, so Bank of England was forced off of gold in nineteen thirty one. 
And so in his later reflections on, on his, you know, these big economic shocks that shaped his, his, his youth, um, that was the second one. So the stock market crash that undermined commodity trading and then, and then, the, and then the, the, the going off the sterling standard, which basically undermined the international monetary system and created this feedback loop that would take, you know, another decade, another world war to get out of. Um, so these are the dramatic you know, early childhood um, events that made him into the economist he was to try to figure out what the, what the hell happened? I had this wonderful, somewhat frivolous life, and then suddenly, <laughs> doom. Yeah. So I want to come back to your, your mention of him switching from the classics to economics. I think a lot about what college used to be, Perry. In other words, everyone was a classics major at one point. Um, that was just a prerequisite of a college education uh, during parts of the 19th century. And so he moves to this newer field of economics, but you mentioned that the classics left a permanent mark on him. I, I, w I can assume what you mean by that, but I'd love for you to explain what you mean by that permanent mark. Well, I, I mentioned already his facility with languages, um, but, I, but I mean more than that. So I'm glad you, you raised that. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a sense of, uh, of what of the human condition. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I mentioned in the book that whereas the sort of standard economics sort of abstraction of human beings as these hyper-rational uh, calculating beings, um, maximizing utility, maximizing profit, um, he never, he, he, his sense of what the human condition was, was, was always much more complex than that. And I think it came from that early classics training. Um, the, and I, that uh, that helped him, I think, in his in his economics. It mean sure. it made him a deeper thinker, um, but it did it did mean that he was a little bit of an outsider in the in the post war uh, uh, economic uh, world. Um, I wanted to just draw a link there in your in your intro. You spoke about investing as as the last great liberal art. I think he would have liked that. I think he would have liked that phrase. So he had a liberal arts upbringing, that's important. And by the way, so did I, before I moved to the Pardee School for 30 years, I taught at Barnard College, liberal arts mm -hmm. college. Um, and I think that was a very important uh, uh, foundation for writing this kind of book. You may, you may have observed that economists don't tend to write this kind of book. <laughs> well, yeah, and by the way, I. I uh, we had just done a podcast with Amity Schles, and and she, it, much like you, likes to use characters as her conversation for history because it it causes the mind to attach to ideas better. Um, but one more thing I want to come back to, because you said this much later in the book, and I want to see if this is what you meant by your permanent mark. You said, quote, economic history for Charlie was a method of inquiry more than it was a subject of inquiry, end quote. I, I believe, we believe that one danger in learning or in education today is the idea that you learn to know. And what Charlie's life was, no, you learn to learn. Is this the kind of permanent mark that the classical education left him? Um, possibly. I, I myself had three years of Latin at Boston Latin. Um, I'm not sure that it, I got that from that. Okay. But, uh, but, but, but perhaps, perhaps he did. I think that um, you know, he came to economic history um, sort of later. The, the thing I would emphasize, and perhaps this does come from classics, I mean, I use this as an epigram in, in I think, maybe chapter two or three, um, mm -hmm. is, is that he says, why do people come to economics? There's sort of two reasons. One, they want to they wanna fix the world, make it a better place. And the other is because they're curious. 
And he mm -hmm. thinks that curiosity is actually the more, the deeper motivation. And so I think that's who he was. He was curious. He was just interested to find out things about the world. And the question is, what is, how do you go about doing that? You know, you, and he found, I think, that the economic historical method was a particularly productive research, research method for, for figuring out how the world works. Um, because you're able to, and, and, and it's sort of in two respects. Um, one is you can sort of, you know, the past is another world. And so it gives you a perspective, knowing about the past, gives you a sort of outsider perspective on the present, okay? That is hard to achieve if you're just living in the present. That's one thing. And the, the other thing is is cross countries, right? That every country is a different world. So so having a compare, saying, look, being able to compare across countries and saying, well, some of his very early work was, was pointing out how the entry of the United States into the world system um, was a shock to to much of the rest of the world, largely through wheat prices. Okay, because there's the incredible agricultural uh, land here, and as that stuff hit the world market, um, wheat prices fell. And so, how did different countries and different farmers in different countries respond to that? And there's actually no one answer. There's different sure. countries do different things. And so, I think that was you know that was one of his first pieces as he was an assistant professor. And, and I think, so that comparative method of the past versus the present and one country versus another is a way of getting perspective, okay? And not getting, you know, lo losing that presentist bias and losing that, that you're, you're, you know, here I am in America, um, getting out of that world and imagining um, getting some perspective. I think that was important. Pro probably it was the classics that of course is, is, a deeply distant past <laughs> and a deeply sure. different culture, and so it is applying in some in some ways those 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 lessons. It reminds me of uh, Ben Graham uh, showing the same company in two different eras and calling them Company A and Company B. To your point, and just using history as the guide. So you you comment on one of Charlie's frustrations that began in graduate school for him, and I I, I don't know if there's much discussion on this, but I just find it a really comical statement. Quote: A graduate student is by definition unhappy. He has the appetite of a man and the income of a child, end quote. Um, I would say that's true for maybe every young person. <laughs> but, um, you know, he had came from an upper class family. The depression had changed that. And I think a lot of his life, I just thought about his roles and his jobs. You know, he was always trying to add things because he always wanted to have his needs met. But it didn't seem like he was ever unhappy for where he was in society. I think some of that was a was because he had this very stable childhood. Okay, that sort of forms your psychological uh, makeup. So he sure. was a very resilient person. He got he 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 suffered a lot of life setbacks and shocks, and he just rolled with the punches and found another way. Um, and uh, I think he, I'm sure he was frustrated and angry, you know, I'm sure you'll come to this, like when he lost his security clearance or, yeah. or other, other events in life um, that were setbacks. But I think also he, it was a, it was a bit of an effort of will. It was a decision to say, I'm just, you know, I'm just not going to wallow in this. <laughs> I'm going to find another way. And the I wish that hadn't happened, and uh, but it doesn't do any good. Wishing wishing doesn't do any good, sure. and 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 pointing to the unfairness of it all or the moral you know appro approbation, it's not going to do any good. You have to find a way to make your way in the world, um, and there's no one going to help you. You know, so you, it's it's kind of up to you. 
So that's I think there are good life lessons for young people about that in 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 very broken times. I mean, sure. World War Two and and the and the depression to make to make your own way in a time when the world seems to be falling apart. Um, and uh, he was not a. It's important to appreciate that he he really did not make did not have a lot of money. Um, sure really ever, except when he was a kid, except when he retired. Once he retired, he wrote a couple of bestsellers, and I think the money was flowing in. But I think he had, and he had four children to raise. Um, so on on a academic salary, um, it wasn't it wasn't easy life that he had. But he loved his work. Okay, and I think that was an, that was another a way to overcome the the buffets of life is to have a project. Okay, that you can sort of do by yourself. Whether the world helps you or not, and that's what he did. He wrote all of these books, like thirty books, you know. So he more or less by himself. This was not. This was not like an army of graduate students writing them and and him putting his name on them. Um, they're they're all they're all on on this manual typewriter, you know, um, with taking notes by hand without computers. And so the I think that is a very stabilizing influence because you don't need a lot of material things. You're living in this life of the mind. Uh, Charlie co-authored a paper in the July 29, 1935 Barron's Magazine quote. The government debt does not represent the invested savings of the country, but rather credit created by the banks. This credit is only liquid in the sense that it is shiftable or that the asset can be transferred to another holder, uh, parent, the Federal Reserve Bank's parent, while it cannot be paid off out of current income on the part of the debtor, the United States government, unquote. Isn't this a great foreshadowing of how Charlie will think about economic policy from a banking lens? So that th- this is he wrote this when he was a graduate student, and he was under the influence at that time of Henry Parker Willis, um, one of the founders of the Fed, yep. um, and and an advocate of the real of the real bills doctrine. And you're hearing the real bills bills doctrine there. Okay, that the that the uh, what makes a bill real, okay, is that it is financing goods on their way to sale, so that when the goods are sold, the bill can be repaid. Government debt is not like that, <laughs> is what he's pointing out, and that we're building our financial system around around government debt more than around real bills. Um, and this new concept of liquidity, shiftability, the ability to sell it, um, uh, was coming into vogue. There was a, a professor um, at, at University of Chicago who had just written a couple of articles. He's responding to this, and um, and I think I think it is right that his concept, his understanding of the economic system as essentially a financial system, as essentially a banking system, as essentially a clearing system, comes from this influence of of Willis, his early early life there, and very much consolidated then because he couldn't get an academic job, and so he wound up being a central banker for a while. Sure. Um, so he, I think it's right to say that he he had a sort of banker's sensibility, um, but I would say even more a central banker's sensibility. He's seeing the system as a whole, right? He's not he's not seeing an individual an individual bank um, and uh, and and seeing and seeing the money flows and and he understood from the very beginning that this is an international system. Um, I, I'll I'll just I mean maybe you're going to come to this, but the, Willis was creating the Fed right to unify the monetary system in the United States. That was his great achievement in his in his mind, um, and it was pretty recent. I mean, <laughs> that was uh, it, it. Really, was just getting going in the 20s. So this was this was that, that was recent. passed in 1914, correct? 
1913. It really kind of got going in 1914. It was like December 1913, I think. And so the uh, and then it was completely upended by the World War One finance. Um, mm. So the it really got started operating as a central bank in after the war in the 20s. And H. Parker Willis was there at the Fed, and he he was he was part of he was part of that. But the important thing for our story about that is that the same for for Charlie. The, the same logic that, that, that said, well, we need to think of the U.S. monetary system as a, as a unified system that, that we should want to have par clearing between California and New York. Sure. <laughs> and in order to get that, we need to have a central bank. That same logic, um, he thought, applied to the world as a whole. And so he was always sort of a fixed exchange rate person, you know, in the, in the sense that there's a fixed exchange rate domestically between California and New York. And we think that that's sort of a good thing for encouraging trade. Um, that's also a good thing inter internationally. So he that that was formed very early in his in his life. And remember, this is a period when the international monetary system has just fallen apart in 1931 with with Sterling devaluing and then there's competitive devaluation. So this is a this is a dream of a, of a future um, that he would spend his life actually working toward advocating, advocating for um, watching, because he also thought that this was more a creation of bankers than a creation of of uh, of of, uh, of politicians or, or mm -hmm. national leaders, that sure. it was an organic construction. Um, and, uh, and, he, and he watched it as an academic. This speaks to today with the federal government uh, having massively expanded the debt and, and then the Federal Reserve is tightening credit. So let's jump in to banking in the 1920s was heavy and lethargic. Explain the type of assets banks held in the 1920s versus today. Um, well, one of the problems in the 1920s is that the Fed was created um, with the on sort of the model of of the Bank of England, and 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 imagine that there was going to be this deep and liquid market in short-term bills, and there wasn't. <laughs> the United States was a developing country, and right. it needed long-term capital, and so the banks were holding you know, the liabilities that businesses were issuing, which were, you know, railroad bonds and and and, and farm mortgages and long-term assets, okay? Not short-term, not short-term, easily liquefiable assets. And, and so they had to figure out a different way to do central banking. That's why there was this shift from self-liquidating to shiftability, because the bank assets themselves were not were not uh, were not self-liquidating and, and there was no particular supply of those kinds of assets. So um, so the Fed had to had to learn how to deal with that kind of a world. Um, so today, the important thing I would I would say, and this is in other work that I've done, you know, we've sort of shifted from a bank lending kind of system to the market based credit system, um, which is also much more global um, because the, the I mean the dollar is now the global system, and particularly since the global financial crisis. Um, the expansion of credit that has happened um, is largely in the global south. This is dollar credit, which has to be intermediated um, globally, um, largely offshore. Um, so the, the, none of this was true, you know, during during his period. Um, but in a way, it's what he I would say the world that he dreamed was possible. And the world that he he imagined was organically that sort of bankers and and normal behavior of business was trying to create. Okay, is the world that sort of we have today? Um, sure. He saw he saw the future in many ways more clearly than his contemporaries. 
and he, and we'll come to later, but he also would admit his wrongs. Um, I wanted to come back to one thing. Prior to World War I, you talk about the classical doctrine and the theory of money being far apart. Angle, uh, you know, obviously uh, uh, one of Charlie's mentors sought to close this gap. Explain what was wrong with the classical doctrine at that time as it applied to especially international trade. So you're talking about, J- so James Angel was, uh, was a student of, of Alan Young at Harvard, um, who was a subject of my first book, The Money Interest in the Public Interest. Um, mm-hmm. He was one third of that, of that book. So I, I uh, and Angel was his favorite student. Um, I even had thought in the first book of making Angel the second character in the book. Uh, and so I had already done a lot of research on him. So when I discovered that he was Charlie's PhD supervisor, I thought, okay, I'm, I, I'm a leg up here. Okay. Yes. I have all these files, all this work I did that I never published. So I can go back and brush it off. So um, so here's the thing, that that the classical um, e- economics, they believed in in sort of the classical dichotomy, okay, that, that which is to say that uh, real things determine real things and monetary things determine monetary things, um, that relative prices are determined by sort of supply and demand, um, and then the price level is determined by the uh, quantity of money. That's That would be the, 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 the quantity theory of money. Sure. Um, and... Uh, but once you start to bring on board um, how international payments are made and that the balance of payments is actually a, a settlement constraint, um, you start to see that the that money in you can't make that sharp. That was an intellectual separation. But in the yeah. real world, that doesn't really work. And so how do you bring those two things together? And Ange- certainly Alan Young um, set Angel on that path, okay, um, and and that's important to appreciate that Alan Young comes out of this American institutionalist kind of economics tra- tradition, and he passed that on to his favorite student. And Angel goes to Columbia, which at that time is the very center of that intellectual tradition with Wesley Clare Mitchell, and so he's passing that on to his student Char- Charlie. Um, and uh, the and and so so he's trying to he realizes that standard economics. Um, is there's you you can't rely on it as much as you might wish, um, and that we're going to have to do some new economic thinking here. Um, this was the period, of course, when Keynes was coming up, um, the general theory in 1936. But that's sort of a domestic story. That's about stabilizing employment. So the the and 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 Charlie knew about that. They all the graduate students, you know, heard about that and they they talked about that. Um, but the it was the international problem that was Angel's problem too. Um, that was always interested interesting to to Charlie, and uh, and so he tried to build on the first stabs of his father and grandfather, <laughs> that is to say, Angel and, and Young, um, and uh, in his thesis, which was interna- International Short-Term Capital Movements. Yes, that was the title of his thesis. Um, and it is uh, an, an attempt to sort of lay out an agenda that was really his agenda for the rest of his life. 50 years later, he published the Marshall Lectures with the same title, looking back on the same issues. So 50 years of his active intellectual life was concerned with these with these matters. So earlier in the, in the uh, book, you talk about how Charlie advocated for an official dollar to be kept stable, back to that idea of stable pricing that he really believed in fervently. Um, but then he also thought there should be a private and this, the official dollar be stable with gold, obviously, um, and the private dollar to be allowed to fluctuate. And he, he laid this out in 1938. Um, I, 
as I got done reading that and I got later in the book, I thought a lot about what LBJ dealt with in the 60s um, with obviously gold being pegged at $35. And um, if you go look at the private gold market, gold wasn't trading at $35. It was leaving the U.S. at that price because you could sell it for more in other places. So um, did, was that a world by the 60s where we actually saw an official dollar, but really a, a private gold market forcing the dollar instead? Um, well, the uh, a couple of things to un, unpack there. The um, Charlie, even so, the first thing that you quote there is from 1938, is when Charlie was working at the New York Fed. Okay, mm -hmm. and they were concerned about putting the international monetary system back together again, and they were implementing the 1936, the tripartite agreement, which sure. was the important thing about that was not stabilizing the dollar against gold so much as stabilizing the dollar against sterling. Okay, mm. um, and the, and the French franc was a part of that as well. The French franc was on a gold standard, and they were very keen on that. So that meant stabilizing against gold um, as well. But the key currency idea of John H. Williams was about stabilizing the major key currencies against each other, the sterling sterling against, against the dollar in this case, um, as a way of transitioning from a sterling standard to a, to a dollar standard. Um, it didn't really work all that well in 1936, 37, and World War II killed it all. But that was sort of the intellectual, that was the beginning, in Charlie's mind, it was that, those were the, those were the seeds of the post-war dollar system. Okay, not mm -hmm. Bretton Woods, 1944, sure. okay, but before, you know, the actual interaction cooperation of central banks, um, practicing central bankers um, in in the late 30s, that in his mind, um, including the Bank for International Settlements, where he, where he in fact went after the New York New York Fed. So now fast forward to the 60s, okay, and what's going on there is that Johnson, as you say, and before him, Kennedy, um, were very concerned about gold flowing out of the United States and saying, well, we have this, this terrible deficit. And of course, the Europeans are concerned about dollar hegemony um, as well, particularly France. And Charlie ha intervened then, remembering this period in the 30s. And in fact, he and his colleague, Emile Dupre, um, Emile Dupre floated this sort of the same idea about maybe we should have ha allow a little escape valve for the pressure on the have the official dollar pegged, but allow the private dollar to fluctuate. You, you'll you'll there's some citations in the in the in the book about that. And they and they wrote this article in 1966 in in the in the Economist about. Um, world liquidity and minority view, where they are emphasizing, remember, they, they don't really believe in the gold standard. Um, sure. They believe in the dollar standard. And they believe that that what, so the so-called international gold standard under sterling was really a sterling standard. It was a gold standard only, only for sterling. Everyone else used sterling balances to make payments. Similarly, after the war, um, it was a gold standard at Bretton Woods only really for the dollar. Everyone else used dollar balances to make payments. Um, and so it was kind of a, uh, a cover, uh, maybe, um, made people feel more comfortable. Um, and so losing gold um, was not a big deal um, for from his point of view. And even taking the dollar off gold, um, the dollar standard is what you want to want to be building. And sure. he thought that that basically New York was replacing London as the center for international financial intermediation. And one of the consequences of that was was capital inflows and outflows. Um, that made politicians very nervous um, and that they tried to prevent 
Um, so he he politicians like Johnson, okay, were trying to kill the emerging dollar system, um, and Charlie was trying to defend it. Um, and of course, he 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 lost at least in the short run because um, in 1971, Nixon, you know, the final denouement takes takes the dollar off gold and 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 shifts to a flexible exchange rate system. You can imagine. For Charlie, his his belief starting in graduate school, you know, we're trying to create this global dollar system. This was this was a huge shock to him, um, sure. and and uh, and he very much feared in 1971 that this was analogous to 1931. You know, when except that in 1931 the Bank of England was forced off of gold. Okay, in 1971 the U.S. just said, ah, screw it, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, so they weren't really forced off gold. It was it was a it was a torpedoing of this emerging system. And it was really very uh, depressing to him uh, for, for, for much of the 70s, um, that he felt like a Cassandra, right? That he had been warning and, he, and was not being, and not, not being heard. Charlie got to go back to Switzerland to work for the Bank of International Settlements. This was in Basel and allowed him to return to the land of his ancestors, as he put it. They were from Bern. You're talking to two people that trace their roots to Langenthal in the canton of Bern. So Charlie is a part of us. How formative was this experience to him to be in such a young institution so far from home? Well, I think that if World War II had not gone the way it did, he would still be there, okay? Or he would have spent his whole career there. It, I think it was very formative. Um, he had been at the New York Fed for only for two and a half years. Um, and uh, you probably know the, B, the BIS, the U.S. sort of did not refuse to join the BIS. It was only 10 years old at that time. Um, and so he went and he was sort of still in connection with all of his New York Fed friends. He had to resign the, the official position. Um, but he wrote essentially the 10th annual report. It's not on his CV or anything, um, but sure. in the archives, you find evidence that he wrote it. And I, in the book, I, I treat it as something that he wrote. His boss was Per Jockamson. Um, who was a big-time monetarist. So he had to kind of fight that intellectual battle um, while he was there. Um, it was, he was only there for one year. He had signed up for a three-year stint. Um, and and I, I think his plan was to be an international banker. As I, as I said, that was, his, that was his life plan coming out of college. And that life plan was coming to fruition. The, the thing he most looked forward to, okay, at the BIS was the regular meetings of central bankers, that they would come uh, once a month and chat about mutual problems and cooperation. And he wanted to be a fly on that wall. And I, that he was very much looking forward to that. Very shortly after he got there, <laughs> World War II brought that to an end. People weren't traveling. And, and, uh, and, and so that was depressing, that what he was most looking forward to um, – but he's he wasn't ready to to say die, and I think he 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 thought maybe maybe this whole German thing would would not turn into a world war. But when when they, when Paris fell, that was it. Um, and uh, and his first child, therefore, was born uh, in New York City, not in not in Basel, as they were planning. Um, and only seven days after they managed to get back by boat, so it was one of these war war kind of stories and the all life then changed because he was he was really planning to stay at at the BIS and have this international life of an of an international central banker um i uh i just just uh, just a, a week or two ago 
I, um, I did an interview with Claudio Borio from the BIS. He had mm-hmm. basically spent his life at the BIS in the same way I've spent my life in, he's about my age, in, 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 in academia. And we were com- comparing notes about that. I think that would have been Charlie's life. You know, he he would have been uh, he would have been like a, a Claudio Borio um, yeah. uh, had had life not intervened and he had to find another way. The the BIS can continue to play banker to the central banks, including Germany throughout the war. They they took gold as interest. This is a note we've never heard. Do you think there was anything else that the BIS could have done in that context? And, and of course, the war in Ukraine makes us think about the context of the BIS even now. Um, well, yes, and 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 uh, and and the sanctions on Russia. The so the BIS got into kind of bad uh, political trouble for dealing with Germany during World War II, and I and I think that Charlie saw that coming and realized that if you stay at the BIS, you're you're going to become implicated in in this sort of thing as as it was, and and the and the IMF, the Articles Agreement at Bretton Woods were agreed to kill the BIS, to get rid of it and replace it with the IMF. The central bankers fought back, and so the BIS is still with us today. But that, they really didn't have any choice, I think, uh, in in terms of their only earning asset were these loans that were made to Germany um, as part of the Young Plan. At the, you know, the whole idea of the BIS, it's important to appreciate, was not just to be a, a central banker's bank, okay? That was Montague Norman thinking that the BIS could maybe help him save the sterling standard. The BIS was created before sterling went off gold, right? And so it was an idea about let's internationalize this problem um, give and give poor Monty a little help, okay? Um, the, the second idea, though, was to commercialize the German reparations. Um, and so it was always the BIS was important. Uh, for The idea was that it would be an, another balance sheet. It could issue its own bonds that would be bought by these central banks um, and then buy the reparations uh, 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 debts of, of Germany, allowing Germany to pay ahead of time, which would allow England and France to repay their war debts to the United States and clear out this sort of war debt overhang. That was the big dream of the BIS. None of that happened because <laughs> it was too slow. And so it all, none of that happened, but they were left with a balance sheet that was created by that, by that experience. By 1939, Charlie had adopted the theory of shiftability. Um, this is obviously the idea of highly marketable securities being treated as though they're liquid. Um, and I'm going to uh, use a quote here out of your book. Insist on substantial price concession before absorbing excess bond selling pressure, end quote. The theory of shiftability is accepted in practice, obviously, today. But what about this idea of price concession on part of the central banks? Um, I'll never forget Howard Marks saying coming out of the spring of 2020 that, in effect, the Fed was crowding out private investment to take down um, risk and, and provide liquidity to markets because they were pricing it at you know zero. Um, did 2020 provide a Kindleberger moment for thinking about the price of money for the lender and the shiftability? Um, well, yes. Um, but so let me make a distinction here. What you're quoting Charlie in the BIS report, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and what he's talking about is the evolution of the lender of last resort function. You know, sure. how what does lender of last resort look like in a world of shiftability? Okay, and and it means basically being I would call today dealer of last resort. That's what my third book was was called. The subtitle: um, New Lombard Street: uh, How the Fed Became a Dealer of Last Resort. So this is about the apotheosis, really, of the shiftability doctrine. That's a lot of what that book is about. Is about the Fed adopting this, and and it and it and and it's the right 
it's the right lender of last resort doctrine for a world of market-based credit. Okay, sure. But that was starting already. The U.S. could see that future because it had all this long-term debt. And so he was he was seeing that already. That's a very, so that's lender of last resort, that's dealer of last resort, and it's about, you know, putting a floor under the collapsing prices of, of the best assets in your system, but, but not trying to goose them, you know. Now, QE was trying to goose them, right? That's a very different thing, where you're now trying to use monetary policy in order to stimulate the economy um, by keeping mortgage-backed security prices high. Um, and therefore, you're not buying them at a low price, you're buying them at a high price. Or you're paying more than other buyers in the market. I mean, yes. Now, in a crisis, that you are paying more than other buyers because there are no other buyers, right? That that's that's exactly what a liquidity crisis is: is that the is that there's free fall, right? So you're you're catching the falling knife. You're putting a floor, okay? So you are paying more than other buyers in the crisis, okay? But you're paying less than the true value of those assets. Um, you're you're supporting those prices until sort of market conditions return. QE is a very different animal, okay? And I I, I don't know what Charlie would have thought of that. He wasn't around to see that. Maybe maybe happily so. Um, but certainly he he would have said, as as most central bankers do, you know, that monetary policy. It's just inherently asymmetrical that you can, you know, like Volcker did, you can put on the brakes a lot better than you can put on the accelerator. Or Keynes would say it's like pushing on a string. You, you can pull somebody across the room with a string, but you can't push them across the room with a string. You know, it just collapses onto the floor. So the asymmetry of, of the way monetary policy works um, is, is exactly what you're seeing, you're seeing in, that, in that distinction. So the other thing during this time, so he goes you know, from the BIS, he jumps over to the enemy objectives unit. Um, and I, think of, I really think of Charlie as a pragmatist, um, just a very pragmatic approach. He's, you know, he's not like the other economists. He's also not a banker. He's this pragmatist somewhere in between. Um, uh, while he's at the enemy objectives unit, um, you know their their work is to how to win the war without crippling the German economy. Again, a very delicate question. Um, they inverted the structure to get to the pinch point, the real economy. Um, Charlie Munger says invert, always invert. And if you invert and look at the bottom rather than look at the top, they came up with ball bearings and aircraft. Um, it, it, isn't this just kind of constantly how Charlie looked at things? Like, where is the small things we need to tinker with to fix the problem that's evolving? Um, well, he always said, so the enemy objectives unit was in London, um, and they were mostly economists. And so they were trying to take apart the German economy and interfere with the German war effort by using these 50,000 planes that Roosevelt had promised sure. um, to to interfere. And so they're thinking about supply chains, right? And they're thinking, where where are the key pinch points that we can, we can interfere with a lot of stuff? You know, with one little bomb, you know, and so that's where it, well, how they how they came up with. So, I, I think you can see, you know, COVID was kind of like that. You know, it it really disrupted global supply chains, um, in and revealed how vulnerable they are, um, and and how just in time stuff is maybe a little fragile. Um, so I think that image of the of 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 the economy as a production process in time, in space, um, is uh, comes comes from those years. Um, I and I do think that that experience, you see you were calling him a pragmatist, that experience in the war in London and then and then on the continent traveling with General Bradley um, after D-Day, um, 
he was an, he he really was one of the best intelligence analysts there's ever been. Um, sure. Taking in raw data of all different kinds and and putting and and using it to form a kind of narrative like, well, so what does that mean? You know, that means that the Germans. I think they've moved that plant somewhere, you know, and where have they moved it? You know, so the not waiting until you have, you know, a complete set of national accounts or something, but but anecdata, you know, that that in, in, a, in a particular a, a telling data point could reveal the whole structure to you. You know, even yeah. if you don't know anything else, this data point that you was completely unexpected makes you realize I was not thinking about this problem right you know and now my uh, my eyes are opened and I can see what is happening um, so I said before that he was a, he was a central banker in a way but I think being an intelligence analyst as an economic historian that was really what he was doing you know you you were speaking about your experience in in college with an economic historian he wasn't really an economic historian. He never went into the archives, okay? Sure. He read works of economic history that were too narrow, that were histories of individual countries or individual events, and he put them together into a story about what is happening at the global level. He was a synthetic thinker in that way. Um, and and all of these other historians are like are like his field agents going out and you know in, interviewing people they've captured and fallen down planes and 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 reporting back to the enemy objectives unit and he was sifting through all of this raw data and then making reports to the generals and saying try there bomb that bridge you know so i think that's that's who he was as as an academic um, as well sifting through he was famous for that like just reading everything okay and finding little nugget you know, in each one of those, each one of those things that he read, instead of specializing in one narrow region or time period, um, and uh, and and that's because he was operating as an intelligence analyst, and he was asking questions and trying to put together a grand narrative. So Charlie was involved with the Marshall Plan and fulfilling the Potsdam Agreement. Explain what caused so much tension for the nations in the Potsdam Agreement. So the uh, you've read this book rather carefully. <laughs> um, so the uh, so so the Potsdam Agreement. Um, this is part of the post World War II settlement, um, and the and of course there's a lot of feeling that we need to punish the Germans for bringing all this pain to us. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, but the economists, uh, Charlie was one of them, thought, well, that's really not going to work. You can't put a lot. You can't make them pay. And and you're going to have to support them. They're all going to. They they're not self-supporting in food. You have to develop the German economy. Actually, sure. you know, these were your enemies, but it's in your own interest for Germany to recover and to join the world of nations and so forth. And so there was this revenge kind of motive. Um, the economists tried to fight that, and the Potsdam Agreement basically. Uh, created the, the 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 new way forward, which was that this level of industry agreement was a floor, not a ceiling. Okay, that we're not going to pastoralize Germany. We're we're going to say that you, we're going to make sure that you have enough to survive, and then you're on your own to build. Okay, yeah. and the Marshall Plan 
was came came in a way. So this was this was first first uh, Charlie's first job at State Department was as the head of the German Austrian reconstruction um, uh, operation. Um, and then he and then when the when uh, and and in fact the the economists in the State Department came up with some of this idea like you know this is not just Germany it's all of Europe that needs to be reconstructed um, and and really we have to do this and so the Marshall Plan was a strategy for reconstructing um, Europe as a whole. Um, and uh, Charlie played, was the executive director of the, of the committee that put this all together as a proposal to Congress. So he was there negotiating really with all of the European nations who of course all had you know, incompatible asks and much too much the, 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 the Congress was never gonna go for it. So to make this whole thing go, that was Charlie's role behind the scenes. And, uh, and, and uh, it almost killed him. He, 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 it, was, it was long, long hours, um, but he was always very proud of that. I think that that was his, he, he viewed, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure he might've been a little un, insufferable as a father sometimes, that how I won the war and, and how I saved the peace. Um, but, but there's some truth to that actually in his life. So, so not, not, making the mis not, not making the mistakes of World War I. Not making the mistakes of Versailles, yes. Extending grace with an economic motive was the way they went and, and it ended up being brilliant. That's why we drive a lot of German cars. Uh, Charlie was critical of certain free market thinkers. He coined the, quote, fallacy of misplaced concreteness, unquote. It makes us think about the asset-backed programs of 2008, or, yeah, 2000. Could this be boiled down to the idea that you can't assume a market is present? You must exhibit it as present, and if you can't, you need to create it as the government. Well, certainly that was that was his idea for a behind the Marshall Plan. You know that that statement, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness, was a critique of the academics who didn't really want to do anything. They just sure. said, "Well, all we need to do is to let the market work." And Charlie, having been on the ground, right, said, "What what market are you talking about?" You know, there's the, these countries are in ruins. You know, that's not that's that's not going to work. Okay, you so you need government here, um, and you need government to set up monetary systems. And and however, he was a big believer in markets once they do work. Okay, so he was not a believer in sort of central planning or anything like that. But it was you know maybe this gets back to the pragmatism. You know. Different different problems call for different solutions, and if you 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 want to be not a hammer that sees everything as a nail, but a carpenter, right? That that has a lot of tools um, and uses the right one for the job. So so uh, a great quote, and I just I mean I I love this. This is gospel in our mind, and I'm going to quote from your book again. Further for Charlie. Uh, the critical ingredient in the growth process was not so much capital formation as what he called the social capital of labor for economic development. The key is to change people, and that suggests focus on two major growing points, transport, and then in parentheses you had and communication, and education. So, uh, end quote. Um, on labor, with the number of people that have left the workforce post-pandemic, doesn't this fit Charlie's view perfectly? In other words, why are there pricing issues? Why are there disconnects? Because labor um, doesn't have the same, uh, you know, it doesn't have the same atmosphere and setting that it was in prior. Um, and, and our economic development is effectively kind of limited by labor right now. And then the kind of the B part to that question is, he talks about transport and communication. I mean, welcome to the post-pandemic world where you can be in um, uh, Butte, Montana, 
and be doing a job at some of the largest corporations in America remotely. So that quote that you gave first, okay, is from his book on economic development, um, which was about the problems of the global south. Um, many people don't appreciate that Charlie was, in fact, a development economist. In fact, international economics and development economics sort of grew up together. It was about the the, the, the rest of the world. Um, sure. And uh, the so those are his recommendations um, for 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 economic development, um, but. But you could, I think it's applicable to a developed economy um, a, as well. Um, and, you know, the, the you, so you're asking about me to channel Charlie and talking about the effect of the pandemic, um, which has certainly, you know, whipsawed us moving from services to, to goods and then back to services. Okay. But it, and so supply chains got all disrupted, um, and that's communication and transport and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, we remember the long lines at the in the ports, um, and uh, the. Uh, uh, but also, we've changed how work is done. This work from home thing, right? Uh, which you were just mentioning. Um, you know, I'm a professor, so I always have worked from home. Professors always work from home. You know, you have your, I had a study, I had an internet connection. It was not really hard for me to move from, from classroom to Zoom. It was, however, a horrible learning experience. You know, it was sure. bad education that we were doing. And that's at the college level. I can't imagine doing this, you know, for elementary or whatever. Uh, so I think that we have lost uh, a generation um, uh, and I see this in my in my students. We need we need we need to to get that back again. Um, we lost the labor problems we're having. Some of this is because of COVID that we depended. It turned out more than we realized on sort of semi-retired people um, bagging groceries because they want to have some activity during the day. Um, and now it's too dangerous. You know, mm. we, we're told that COVID is gone, but it's not really gone. And older people know that, you know, and they're the most vulnerable. And so we've lost we've lost that chunk. We shut down the borders, how much we were dependent on immigrant, you know, labor, you know. So and and the so so it's been very disruptive of of existing production schemes. And now we're trying to get back to normal, but we don't know what the new normal is. Um, and so there's a lot of of bottlenecks, and so we're seeing these these you know in, inflation is being caused in my mind lar largely by these supply troubles um, that are are in the, are in the way. And we the sooner we solve them, you know, the better off we're we're going to be. But I think returning to status quo ante, I think it ain't going to happen. Uh, I just like your first answer where we could blame uh, the problems of the pandemic on baby boomers. So uh, with the next question, I'll let go to Bill. Yeah. <laughs> Did I way. say that? No, I'm just, I got to play on it. <laughs> I, I always, They're the fault. I, I Come on, Barry. I always pick millennials, so he's got to take a shot at that. <laughs> yeah. so, I see, I see. The labor problem will get solved by price. If you'll pay them enough, people will come to work. There was a lot of talk about the foreign currency reserves that China has held over the last 20 years. Charlie never looked at these as a long-term problem. Explain to our audience how we should view these reserves in a Kindleberger lens. Well, I'm still trying to figure that out. This this was not a this problem had not emerged um, while he was still still around. Um, but it's important to appreciate number one that the global the global monetary system is a dollar system. So if China is running large surpluses, they really have no choice except to accumulate dollars. Okay. So this is this is not therefore about the U.S. sort of running trade deficits um, irresponsibly. Um, sure. 
it, it that's that's not any more than so there's an analogy there with the European problem that I was mentioning to you in the 1960s okay so this is not being this is about China um, solving its own economic development problems um, and and that leads to this this uh, surplus which they basically have to buy dollar assets and they're trying to buy the safest dollar assets that they can they pivoted for a while trying to create their own dollar assets meaning loans loans to the belt and road and a lot of those loans are now coming due and and the political problems of collecting that money makes them wish that they had bought more treasury bills I think um, uh, and uh, so so it's the the way of understanding that is not is not through sort of irresponsible irresponsible deficit spending of the United States. It's about it's a natural outcome of the of the of the growth of the of the global dollar system and expansion to the global south. I, I mentioned earlier on that the global the the expansion of credit in, since the since GFC has been mostly in the global south um, and uh, and that's all dollar credit. Um, so it's 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 about the offshore dollar system. It's not happening in New York as Charlie had imagined it would. Okay, yeah. it's happening in offshore dollar centers um, in in London, in Singapore. The the swap agreements that were put in place in 2008 to 2009 and in 2020 uh, aren't those right out of Charlie's playbook? Absolutely. That's absolutely right. And they, their origin really was on the balance sheet of the BIS. The BIS did these swaps. Um, in, in And he always would point to the Basel Agreement of 1961 um, as, a key, as a key stabilizer for the global system. And this is about swap agreements that were run on the balance sheet of the BIS because at that time it was not sure that the Fed would cooperate or could cooperate politically. Now those swaps are run on the balance sheet of the Fed. Um, that's that's what you're showing. That's what you're talking about. Um, the liquidity swap agreements, I call them the C6 liquidity swap agreements because they're permanent and unlimited swap agreements between the six major central banks of the, of the world. Um, and uh, you you mentioned 2008-9. So when the Fed did these in the in 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 the in the global financial crisis. Um, the Congress found out about this and called Ben Bernanke in on uh, in in to ask him like what's all that? Who gave you the authority to do that? Um, and uh, noticed that this time they did it and no one called in anybody, right? So these are now part of the global of the global dollar system and they're not politically uh, contentious apparently anymore because the the size of what we did in COVID is about the same as the size of what we did in the global financial crisis and nobody made a peep. I'll never forget. I think it was on a Sunday that Powell had his press conference announcing that, you know, the swap lines were in place, you know, to your point on an unlimited basis. Um, and it's just one of those things where you like, you hear unlimited swap agreements, like, wow, I don't know what that is, but that sounds huge. <laughs> so let's see. So, um, but it was something they knew about already. So, I mean, you're quite yeah, yeah, right to link yeah, yeah. it to 2008, nine. It's like, yeah. it's now on the shelf. We, yeah. this is like, and, and so we a know tool. what, with a tool that it's you know we don't need a hammer anymore we need a swap line and so that's what they pulled off and and the evidence is very clear that 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 things were spiraling down pretty fast okay and that announcement suddenly halted it and to your, to your point it effectively in the dollar system what it did is just made sure the dollar system had enough dollars it, you know to your point um so charlie was wrong about Bretton woods though when that took place in 1971 uh, he thought pricing would kind of fall apart based on floating rates. And, you know, I, again, pragmatically, he admitted his error. Um, you know, it, it, 
did he view that to be a big failure on his part or did he look and say, gosh, I'm glad that this worked out as splendid as it did? Well, he certainly was glad that it worked out as splendid as it did. Um, I think I always think that he he underestimated he, he, he didn't believe his own theory enough <laughs> or he underestimated the ingenuity of the bankers because um, and some of that is because he, he, you know, because of his own education, he really had not brought on board kind of the the rise of modern finance um, and computers and so forth. So the notion that you could you know, work work in and, and create hedging instruments and so forth um, to survive. So the world did not fall apart. The international monetary system did not fall apart, despite the fact that the U.S. basically abdicated responsibility. Um, that was a surprise to him. Um, but the reason it didn't fall apart is because the bankers um, found workarounds and, and wouldn't let it fall apart. They wouldn't, you know, the, Nixon said, I don't want the dollar to be the global currency anymore. And the banker said, we do. <laughs> and and who and who wound up creating history here? Okay, not bankers. Nixon. It was the bankers. And and then Volcker, you know, in 1979, basically the politics start to work, where you can say, okay, the U.S. will lead after all. Okay, and then 1985, the Plaza Agreement, the rest of the world will follow after all. This is how Charlie understood the world um, in at, at, contemporaneously that Volcker was a good thing and the Plaza Accord was a good thing. Um, and it put the system back together again. So instead of having global depression, which is what he feared in nineteen in nineteen thirty one, okay, we had global inflation. Yeah. Um, but it was so the monetary instability, international monetary instability, causes global price instability. In the thirties, it was downward price instability. In the seventies, it was upward price instability. Okay, and that's why I feel confident uh, looking forward where we are now that. We don't have international monetary instability. And so I don't think we're going to have either deflation or inflation sustained. So Charlie, Char Charlie at that time argued that money supply should be fixed in the long run, but elastic during the short run crises that we run into. Um, is it just as simple as saying, well we, well, we actually assumed wrongly from a central bank perspective, I'll use the Fed just as the global central bank, did we assume that money would be elastic in the long run with ideas of like MMT and whatnot? Um, and thus low rates. Um, did we assume, uh, with reference to what? The, the, just the, the price of money. In other words, the elasticity of money was going to be always present. Um, so, so yes. So, so money is endogenous. Okay, in in because it's credit. Okay, it's mm -hmm. it's actually a, a credit all the way up. That was Charlie's view, and I think that's the correct view. Um, okay. But the um, but it's elastic. It's elastic in both directions. Um, that it can it can expand and it can contract. Um, and you need to manage it. That's another piece. You know, he's a central banker. This is not a self enforcing thing. And there is no simple rule like a three percent growth rule. You said that sure. he he wanted money to be fixed in the long run. He it wasn't that. It's just that the the base money should grow at the same rate as the economy. Um, and he didn't, that's, that's, that's not a monetarist view that we should control the quantity of money, okay? It's, it's that we should, we should try to, um, money is endogenous, so we should try to create that as the endogenous result <laughs> in, 
the in the long in the long run through through macroeconomic management. Um, and uh, the but but when there's a crisis, all bets are off, and you open the floodgates. Um, and that's what we did in March 2020. Okay, that's what we did in 2008-09, and and those were the right things to do because the consequence of of letting uh, a, a, a spiral of downward contagion, you know, it are just very, it's very expensive. So mopping up, however, afterwards is not so easy. You know, once the, once the cow is out of the barn, it's a little hard to get it back in. That's what Mr. Powell is dealing with right now. Um, and, uh, and I think so far doing, doing actually a pretty good job, um, as, as a matter of fact, but that is, so those are the two sides, you know, um, elasticity, um, in in a crisis, but then discipline. You know, when when things are restored and markets are working again, you need to have the instruments and the courage to try to return to some to some uh, uh, normalcy. Um, we've been in a very elastic period, really, mm-hmm. since the global financial crisis, um, and some of that is because of pushing on a string, right? Which uh, has has led to really inflated balance sheets and asset prices and so forth. So, so putting that cow back in the barn is is a multi year process. So uh, we we and we discussed this a little bit right before. Um, but I think Charlie's really valuable for us to study, and this book is so wonderful for today because of he got to see wars. I mean, I, I'm 39 years old, Perry. Um, yes, there was the Iraq War, but that didn't really affect my life personally. Um, Ukraine seems very different in so many respects. And so I'm going to read a quote um, late in your book. Uh, you say, the displacement that gets the most attention, um, and this is coming from his work in, in, in his work, uh, MPC, um, the, the displacement that gets the most attention in these pages is war and the end of war. War both cuts off old connections in trade and finance and is likely to require the fashioning of new. In particular, war has often been the impetus for foreign borrowing, which opens channels that remain after the war is over. It is these new channels that bring the boom as initial trickle subsequently widens the channel to enable eventual flood. The consequence of limited horizons that change discontinuously is that capital flows take place in deep channels. The same is true of migration. Unlike water flowing evenly over a broad surface, capital moves like water in sluices or conduits, ignoring or bypassing better opportunities on occasion because of the high costs of obtaining information about them, end quote. Okay. When I read that, I literally thought of Zoltan Pozar immediately because he's pitching this post-dollar world that we're in and explaining that you know the dollars aren't as meaningful as the con- as the way to for the conduit, and I think of what's going on right now where if you get a tangible product and I, in the Kindleberger sense of things, think about trade. So if you get a product to port on the right time to the right truck, and it ends up at the end goal as uh, hoped for, there's massive liquidity, there's massive value in the international trade um, community right now. The problem is we don't have that. So um, do, you, do you see a different paradigm coming about because of the pandemic, because of what we talked about, things with labor? Um, obviously, this talks about migration in the quote you used here, um, you know, because people aren't moving the same way they used to. Um, they're, they're actually dispersing. They're not going to the same place. Um, well, that, that quote that you read is actually from the financial history. It's about the financial history of Western Europe that he's talking about there. Um, and war cuts... You know, war is a hothouse, he said there. That's another yep. quote. Um, that that it causes 
Uh, and what does that mean? Okay, uh, a hothouse to a gardener, you know, this is this is where a a small tender plant can suddenly grow much larger and much faster than if it were in 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 a less uh, a less hothouse arrangement, so that new institutional arrangements can develop very rapidly. Um, and I think that that probably is true of what's happening in it, because of COVID and now because of these Russian sanctions, you see workarounds with India, workarounds with China. Are those going to be permanent new 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 channels or not? Okay, well, I think we don't know. <laughs> I, I think that when we look back 10 years from now, we will see that there were new channels cut, okay, and that they led to permanent changes in capital flows and so forth. But I'm not sure that I, it's early days, and I'm not sure that these channels are going to be about revulsion to the dollar, okay, that, that the dollar system has been counted out multiple times, um, even by Charlie himself, as you were pointing out, you know, and it's come back. It's come back stronger and, and and expanded geographically. So I'm not I'm not willing to say that 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 the dollar is a goner. Okay, um, I am willing to say that war is causing experimentation in lots of different places, like different kinds of supply channels, different kinds of of uh, and, and that these will have some kind of permanent effect. Whether that permanent effect will be revulsion against the dollar or a reinforcement of the dollar system. I think we we my my money is on the latter, not well, the former. Well, 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 so um, more, because of well, history. Because of one, history. One more question on that then. So what we can find to your point is dollars don't flow evenly like they did. And I we we agree with you. Um, but it seems likely the dollar is there to stay. But you can find a lot of occasions right now where a company can go where dollars can't. And so do you think that that has a shiftability role that hasn't been present um, in the dollar system prior to where an entity can be in a place, not be dealing in dollars. Let's say, you know, uh, uh, you know, thinking about, for example, let, let's say you have an entity in Russia, you still own it, you're publicly traded in the Western world though. Um, do you see a role that corporations are now playing in that that they had never prior? It could be corporations. It's other other anyone who can help you with a workaround when you're faced with sanctions. Okay, is is your friend, um, and you're going to pay them a premium. So these workarounds are expensive. Okay, at the moment you were saying that they're that's really an implication of what you were saying. Um, and if we return to normal, and therefore prices return to normal, corporations are going to return to normal, and they're going to sure. get rid of these these expensive workarounds. Um, so it is a question. Um, the 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 history of the rise of the dollar system that I tell in the book is this was Charlie's words. He says it's a seesaw story. You know, two steps ahead, one step back; two steps ahead, one step back. And we've had a period of extreme elasticity, and now we're having you know lots of discipline in various different places. And things are breaking, and new things are being invented. We'll have to put it all back together again and see where we are. Um, but I don't think that you can you can you should extrapolate from a few a few examples of things that are happening in the war itself um, sure. and then and then find out uh, when we reconstruct you know remember the Europeans European currencies did not return to convertibility until 1958 mm. <laughs> wow. wow okay so it the this is a very it's an institutionally evolving system it takes a long time and it's a, it's important not to extrapolate from two months worth of evidence. Means he's not a Ray Dalio guy. Yeah, I was gonna say I, I won't. I, I'll, I'll 
I'll calm down my enthusiasm enthusiasm when I'm reading Zoltan's uh, pieces from now on. So just for you, Perry. Well, he's so. a friend, um, but we have this friendly debate. Um, and perhaps this friendly debate, as I say, will probably continue for some years to come. Nice. Um, we weren't able to get to everything. Um, you know, I was th- looking at my notes. We cut out his uh, his spat with Triffin, which I thought was a really interesting, to your point about debates, um, that was a very fun engagement back and forth. And we didn't talk about the German monetary reform of 1948, which he thought was incredible and amazing. Is there anything else that you, you think should be mentioned about the book that we didn't cover? You covered quite a, you covered quite a bit. Um, the... Well, chapter chapter six is about is is about Triffin. Seven is really about his his tangles with the flexible exchange rate people, um, mm. including Harry Johnson. You didn't mention, um, and and his, and his role with in, in you know with Mundell being his student, the 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 economists, the academics. Um, much of that is not we haven't talked about his time at MIT, his loss of his security clearance. There's a lot in this book. It's not very long. This book. I tried to make it short um, so that people would read it. There's a lot of meat, though. It, it's a meaty. Meat to this book. It's meaty. Yeah, it's very meaty. And by but the way, it's supposed when... to be short. So th- I'm I'm not surprised that you that you had had more to talk about than we can. That's that means I've done my job. As I was reading Kindleberger, you know, kind of uh, tackling and fighting with, with academia, um, you know, for a couple stock pickers that that think they can produce alpha. I loved Kindleberger at that moment. So um, let's see, Perry. Uh, I know Bill and I. I'm speaking for both of us when I say this. Uh, we wish we could have taken a class from you in college because this is just, we love this kind of subject matter. We love economic history. This is just such a great Well, you know to... I have an online class at Coursera, Economics of Money and Banking. But where, where can our listeners find that? It's free. On, it's, you can audit it on Coursera. Um, just look my name, Economics of Money and Banking. It was filmed in the fall of 2012. Okay. So just remember that, okay, that it's 10 years old. And so some of the institutional facts have changed, but the... But the way of thinking about the world, um, essentially what I've done in the last 10 years is to extend that analysis to international stuff using Kindleberger as my foil. Um, so that's, and all of those videos, by the way, are also on my own webpage. And there's more stuff about Kindleberger on that on my webpage too, um, with pictures of him growing up and and quotable quotes. You like his quotes, so I have a whole section on quotable Kindleberger. Awesome. Um, you just you'll poke around my webpage. You just Google it. Just spell my name right. There aren't two of us, and you'll find it. Well, my mind is flowing with ideas from this book. Um, for our listeners, this is a must read for understanding the dollar framework of the world. And what I would argue is going to give us, like Perry and, and we talked about, uh, peaks and touches into what might come. Um, go buy a copy of Money and Empire. Uh, thank you, Perry, for joining us. I also want to thank my dad, Bill, for hosting this episode with me. Um, for our listeners, if you enjoy this podcast, we'd appreciate you providing a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our show. If you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, like Perry's, um, email podcasts at smeetcap.com. That's podcast at smeetcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at smeetcap. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeetcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.